Uh, Hugh, you, you, um, you, you were chatting to Sergio Aguero. I was chatting to Sergio Aguero, although what Sergio Aguero said to me was basically, stop chatting to me. Uh, who did he give the, the sweary line to? Was that you? Yes, yeah. What happened? Sergio Aguero, I asked Sergio Aguero because you know you do that cliche thing when somebody's leaving, you say, uh, could you tell me what was your highlight of your time here? Yeah. Um, so I asked it in a slightly more irreverent way. Um, and he said, your yeah. time here? What was the highlight? <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Caught him out completely. Yeah, I know. He didn't know what was coming at him. And, and he said, um, he said, the, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and then I said, because he's Italian. He's yeah, a of course. Italian <laughs> <laughs> to which I thought I probably need a little more than this. So using my credible journalistic skills, I teased a little bit more out of him by saying, tell us a little bit more. Tell us more. Um, and then he said that he, um, he played shit against QPR that day. So all he wanted was one more chance. Um, so everybody tittered at the uh, the expletive, and and he did his grin, and everybody forgave him. Oh, it, it's funny how even like adults, when when a footballer swears, find it hilarious. Like when when Guardiola used the f bomb on match of the day, everyone was like, "Oh my god!" Did you see Pep say, "Oh my god, he's so use, cool, he's so edgy"? Word, oh my god, it's amazing. <laughs> he swears and he smokes cigars. Yeah, oh, he's such a legend. Do you remember Micah's uh, f? F tirade at the end of the Villa. I think he scored against Villa. He and did. Maybe late equaliser. Yeah. We were at that game. He said, How do you feel? He said, I feel effing marvellous. And he was like, oh no, stop. But he gave it the full bifters. It wasn't kind of disguised in any way. <laughs> full it bifters. Was, he emphasised the word. Everything else was quiet, but the language, the expletive was clear as crystal. Is that uh, it? Yes, that's true. Yes, that's that true. is true. Absolutely. That, that, was, that was Micah's selling point for at least the first four to five years of his career. Do you think that's what got him into punditry? This fellow <laughs> yes. will swear on telly. Yeah. There's every chance. I would imagine that the first conversation that anybody had upon hiring him was, you realise that, you know, when you dropped that F-bomb when you were 17 against uh, Aston Villa uh, after that FA Cup fifth round tie. Mm. Um, that's, that, that's the that thing. You that, shouldn't do that again. <laughs> yeah, that's the people in TV, they love that kind of jeopardy. Yeah, I can imagine. Really exciting. Yeah. Would it be great to have a, a show where you could say anything? You could, if you set a gap ball in with rubbish would you love to do a game and have pundits who just say it like they want to say it is there legs in this like late night hollyoaks everything saucy in rory's mind takes him back to late night hollyoaks <laughs> nothing has happened before or since in his life that has ever crossed any boundaries apart no, but the from one, late night hollyoaks what chilling what jinx is talking about is is basically football's version of late night hollyoaks it's kind of it's a little bit rude. It's a little bit sexy. It's, it's... not sexy, is it? It's just rude. <laughs> it could be. Let's just get you and Gary Neville in the in the commentary box. See what who would be who would be your who would be your your picks if you had three studio guests that you would reckon could come out with some absolute filth in terms of language? <laughs> Don Goodman, because <laughs> <laughs> you presume Roy Keane could really let rip. But would it, is he? Have have you heard him swear, Hugh Stick? You must have. have is he a sweary man? I mean, I presume he can. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we can all swear, but some but, people just like don't, do they? But it's about the difference between that and the normal on-air persona. persona. Yeah. So, for example, if you've got Gary Neville, he, you know, he gives it both barrels without swearing most of the time. So, what would swearing? You do? should see Very him in lit. rehearsals. Not quite the same there. <laughs> Unbelievable <laughs> language. Finch has this. I've never seen than anyone white. describe a, a new iPad with such passion and filthy words. What about an iPad? Yes. What, what was on his iPad? It wasn't what was on it. It was just the fact that he was explaining to somebody else about how absolutely amazing the new iPad and what you could do with it and, and all the amazing features on it. But everything was 
effing amazing, apparently. And it had to be it had to be explained in that way, rather than just saying, that's a really nice feature, it's really helpful, and it's, it's a step up from the previous iPad. It was, it, like, it turned into a, like, in the change room again. I was like, is this being recorded? It's appalling. It's no good for iPad in terms of their advertising. What a f***ing update. <laughs> this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, qualified for the Champions League. Rory Smith, qualified for the Europa League. And Andy Hinchcliffe, just missed out on the Europa Conference League. Oh. Um, the food is, would anybody like to share any food that they uh, have consumed or are intending to? Steve, is that an R2-D2 mug? It is an R2-D2 mug. It's cool, isn't it? If your kids were drinking out of it, cool. You <laughs> drinking out of it, sad. I've got a story about food. It's not the so, strawberries again and cream, is it? It was mine and Kate's wedding anniversary on Sunday. Oh, it is the strawberries and cream one. <laughs> so we went out for lunch on Saturday. Just We're not very well organised and that was all we could get. And also I was doing a game on the Sunday. I was at Anfield on Sunday. So um, we thought we'd go out on Saturday. But just because we, we could only get a lunch reservation, we're not, yeah, we hadn't, everything's booked up in Britain for the next 10 years and blah, blah, So we went to, to Piccolino's, which is a, a northern chain restaurant. Uh, that is remember... very much doing it, down. talking about marketing and PR. That's an awful effort. <laughs> it's a northern chain restaurant that is slightly overpriced but does quite nice food. Chinch is shaking his head. Piccolino's is fine. I, it's not amazing. Do not ask Nicky, my oh, wife really? Nicola, about Piccolino's. Do you not know fan? We're talking about filthy language and expletives. You would be covered in phlegm and covered in dirty language. Anyway, she's not a fan. She's not a, fan. a bad experience no. with the Noki there or something. What happened? No, 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 not a bad experience. No, just uh, she thinks the food. <laughs> Carry on, Rory. The, the food is all right. It's it, it's it it's what good. you know about food. It's, Carry on. It's overpriced, but it's it's not bad. Anyway, I think they would call it aspirational. <laughs> it, yes. The so we we, we had we, we took Ed to do lunchtime uh, and Ed ate an enormous like they ordered a child's pizza for him which is basically the size of kind of a medium sized adult pizza and he literally just sort of sort of swallowed it like a duck. It's quite impressive to watch. And anyway, we, we were then discussing a pudding, and I, I'd had a starter and a main, so didn't feel the need for pudding. Kate didn't want pudding, but Ed had got his eye on, on, on an ice cream sundae. Never had a sundae before. So, and Kate was a little bit, like, reticent. He doesn't need all that ice cream. Maybe just get him a normal ice cream, just, you know, just, just one scoop of strawberry or something. Anyway, so Kate went to the loo, and I, and I summoned the waiter over and immediately set about ordering Ed a sundae. And so I said it was to him, your final wedding anniversary. You're playing with fire here. So I said to Ed when before Kate came back, I said, "Don't tell Mummy what we've ordered." He was like, "Yeah, no, don't tell Mummy. Don't tell Mummy." And the um, anyway, Kate came back, sat down, saw that we were both smiling, looked at Ed and said, "What are you going to have for pudding?" And he went, "Not going to tell you," and and said, "You've ordered a Sunday, haven't you?" And I went, "Yep, we've ordered a Sunday." And she said, "I bet I can guess what you've ordered." And she said, from the list, she said, you've, you'll have ordered chocolate and strawberry ice cream. I went, yeah. And she went, you'll have ordered marshmallows, Ed loves marshmallows, and chocolate buttons, Ed loves chocolate buttons. Yeah. And she went, and you will have ordered toffee sauce. And within, within it, not even a challenge, without a, a scintilla of doubt in her mind, she had established immediately what I had ordered my son as a Sunday that I could also eat. And it was one of those very kind of, it was one of those very, you know, Six years of marriage, eleven years of our relationship. It's it's actually taught us something about each other. Kate can predict my puddings <laughs> without even thinking about it. I think once you get past the predict the pudding stage, you know you're in a comfortable relationship. Exactly. Uh, the football is changed. Do you know what we're talking about today? Absolutely no idea. The Premier League season is over, but can it really be over before we have delivered our hot takes? 
and takeaways. No. And that's the hottest take of the day. So prepare yourselves. What is the fourth annual set piece menu hot takes and takeaways episode? We will also be revealing the SPM PLPL champion while reminding ourselves that we still owe last year's champion their prizes. Oops, Rory's burden has been doubled. Two copies of Mr. Please, Rory. Um, that is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Talking of SPM PLPL, there was another less official SPM related league this season. That was the SPM FPL the Fantasy Premier League league made up of SPM listeners. It was set up by Buffalo John Wood, not the one from Huntington Beach, and he writes with a handy end-of-season summary. Dear Mikhail Dinsky, Reacher, Carla Dixon, and Narrator. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> I would like to start off by saying that Chinch's Reach feature was excellent. I would also like to congratulate Hugh on his accent, which I identified as somewhere between a prepubescent scouser and an Irish leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> the way he drifted between the two was almost hypnotic. Um, you should know that John is from the Wirral. Here are the top five positions, continues John, in the inaugural SPM FPL. I will do this in reverse order to add some sort of jeopardy. I know what you TV people are like. I have included their overall rank out of more than 8.2 million global players. In fifth place, Esgian Toast. Esgian Toast? Um, sorry, Matt. Managed by Matt Green on 2,484 points. This is the highest score that Matt has achieved since he started playing the game. Overall rank... 12,327. In fourth place, mm, Ty Green, managed by James Gabe Davis on 2,485, pipping Matt to a top four finish by just one point. This is also James's strongest season since he started playing the game. Overall rank, 11,994. In third place, the Hall School, managed by Mark Hallgate, finished on 2,492. Once more, this is Mark's highest score ever, I'm detecting a pattern here, since he started playing the game. Overall rank, 9,985. So well done to Mark for breaking into the top 10k. In second place, Alistair Plays Fantasy, managed by Alistair Pierce on 2,533. Again, this is Alistair's highest score since he started playing the game. He's achieved an overall rank of 2,509. Oh, I mean. And finally, in first place, Stronger Bell FC, managed by Neil McNamara on 2,635 points. This is the person, says John, that I mentioned in previous correspondence as being the best on the Falkland Islands at Fantasy Premier League. Well, almost as if spurred on by Rory's contempt at the time for such an accolade, he finished in the world 15th wow. overall. Oh, that is 15th out of eight... 1,240,321 players. He actually achieved as high as fourth in the world as recently as game week 35. That is seriously impressive and should uh, make the other 289 involved in the SBM FBL feel a bit better for not being anywhere near as close. He was only 45 points off first place in the whole world, uh, which is some going. And then he adds, this is Neil's highest score since he started playing. <laughs> Uh, way back in the 2006-07 season. Uh, he also adds, in 146th place, Athletic Bilbo Baggins, managed by John Wood. Uh, all the best, John, not from Huntington Beach. So congratulations to Neil McNamara. It was also pointed out by my brother-in-law, Paul, um, who plays FPL religiously, that it was an extraordinary achievement that we had somebody in our private league who was that good, and yet we are s somehow claiming credit for it. Does Neil, does Neil instantly become an SPM squirrel with that score? He should do, really. Are there he should squirrels be a squirrel. in the Falkland squirrel. Islands? Squirrel. There won't be squirrels unless squirrel. if if there are squirrels, they're an invasive species. It wouldn't be a compliment. Uh, so congratulations to Neil and thank you all of you uh, for playing and thank you to John for setting it all up for us. Uh, Angad Vital has got in touch with an idea. Hi Bulbasaur, Charmander, Squirtle, and Psyduck. 
Yeah. Are we all happy with that, that Pokemon? Pokemon. Yes, yeah. very good. Yeah. <laughs> Small children have uh, informed two of the group at the very least. I know about Pokemon. My brother watched them when he was about 15. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, looking back, was a questionable decision. <laughs> uh, Angad starts like this, and we should all note he starts correctly. Set Piece Menu is the best football podcast. Where the camaraderie and humour that are an essential part of football fandom meets considered and thought-provoking discussion of the various social, cultural, sporting, economic, philosophical and joyous aspects of the world's sport, football. You bring your broad spectrum of your professional experience in the sport to bear on timeless topics while simultaneously involving a global community of listeners in your discussions. I have a sense of community with you uh, as well as many other listeners, all of whom I have never met. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Stephen, cut, paste, Twitter bio. Um, I am writing from Bangalore in India as a thunderous monsoon threatens outside. I have a very different relationship to rain than the British typically. I love it. It brings a sweet smell on the breeze, clean air and respite from the tropical sun. I've come close to emailing many times before only to delete my draft. Well, that changes now. I imagine uh, Alan Partridge on this time providing us with that last sentence. Uh, there have been various discussions recently around Super League star restructuring, the ill-conceived ESL plan, Infantino's African League proposal and ongoing plans for the Bena League. It should be mentioned, he says, and often isn't, that there is an ongoing competition in the women's game called Bena League combining these two nations. Well, I would like to make an additional proposal presenting the East European Premier League. A 20-team league comprising teams from the Czech Republic, Croatia, Ukraine, Romania, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece and Turkey that will sit on top of their national leagues with promotion and relegation. Below, I've listed the top 20 rated clubs from these nations. Perhaps a quick quiz for resident hipster football correspondent Rory Smith to name these 20 teams. Extra points for coming close with the order. I've taken the ratings from the website clubello.com which ranks all the clubs in Europe based only on their match results. So with loads of pauses and gaps deleted hereafter, shall we try and guess some of the 20 clubs? I won't be able to do it in order, I wouldn't have thought, but you'd have Sparta, Prague, Slavia, Prague. What's yeah. the other team in the Czech Republic that always gets in the Champions League? And Well, a third from the Czech Republic would be Victoria Pilsen. Oh, Victoria Pilsen. Pilsen. Yeah, Victoria Pilsen. So that's correct. Um, Those are the three Czech teams. Uh, Croatia would be Dinamo and probably Hajduk. There's no Hajduk split. No Hajduk split. Is, is a Rijeka there? Uh, Rijeka is there. And there's one yeah. other from Croatia. Really? Yes, Osiek. Oh, okay. Are also in there. Um, Ukraine is Shakhtar and, and Dynamo Kiev. And there's more from uh, Ukraine. Uh, Zorya Luhansk. Yeah. Zorya Luhansk, yeah, okay. Serbia, you go Red Star and Partizan, I would have thought. Serbia has Partizan and, yes, Shvena Zvezda. Yeah, let's not, yeah. come on, this, this isn't Jonathan Wilson, it's Red Star. <laughs> As we've discussed before, the only language in which that team name isn't cool is Serbian. Yes, exactly. It translates brilliantly into every other language. Etoile rouge, Stella Rossa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Bulgaria, I would say that should not be included in this lead, but Ludogorets is yes, the only team that can just, be anywhere close. There is just one, and it is Ludogorets. So there's eight teams left. The Tur- so the, the big three Turkish teams must be there, Besiktas, Galatasaray, and, and Fenerbahce. And I would guess one more. So that would be either Bishakcha here or Trabzonspor. It is Trabzonspor. Yeah. So we have one Romanian and three Greek teams left. Uh, so Olympiakos. Do Stauer Bucharest still exist? They, 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 they exist twice, Stauer Bucharest. And as a result of the confusion, they do not exist in this league. And yeah. Oh, okay. The, so the Greek teams would be Olympiakos. Correct. Pauk. Yes. And okay. I would guess 
Hamathin Icos or no, Ike? Steve, what did you say? Ike. Ike is correct, yeah. I mean, that's a joke. You're not having an Eastern European Super League without Panathinaikos. But as, as, as it was very clearly laid out by Anghad, this is, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. teams based on recent results. But then um, in that case, how are Bashik Shahir not in there? Bearing in mind they played in the Champions League this season. Just They might not have done it. It depends how Clubella were taking their, their rankings. It might have been over about five years or something. But I would have uh, thought Bashik Shahir would have been close. Yes, and, and I think uh, limiting it to, a, to not having too many teams from one country as well. The final team is from Romania. Is it Cluj? It is Cluj, sitting right in the middle. Uh, so we got there eventually. You'll, uh, you'll appreciate, listeners, that uh, that was a process that took close to 55 minutes, but we got it down to about it a It didn't. That is a complete lie. It, we'd, we'd basically got there in one. I think... Rory had European, to Google, you know, Turkish football teams. That, I wasn't quite sure. That is, that is a joke. The, this is the problem with him being in charge of the editing process. <laughs> yeah. We were discussing this over beers last night with a couple of mutual friends that... However many times you want to have a go at Hugh during the course of this podcast, it will always hit the cutting room floor. So you just have to, <laughs> you just have to accept that it, his decision is final. Uh, well, he's if, a, if you want to take over and, and spend the hours doing it, that's absolutely fine. We've had about 18 swears um, in this episode so far, so that'll take me a while. I, I like the idea of an Eastern Europe, European Super League, to be serious. Uh, I think that it is something that is probably necessary, and it's a shame that in the fallout from the Super League the lesson that, that seems to have been learnt is not we need to think about the right sort of change so that the wrong sort of change doesn't happen. It seems to have been that everything is fine, leave it all alone, there are no problems, yeah. and it's dangerous. Just that those, all of those teams, that would be a league that could sell TV rights for a substantial amount of money. It would help to re- redress the competitive imbalance between West and East, but I think you could probably do it in a slightly neater fashion. And it's actually, mentioned in the conference league at the start, it's one of the things I think there's a really big missed opportunity with the Conference League. I, I don't understand why they haven't split it so that the Europa League and the Conference League effectively become West and East competitions to give, give the countries that are locked out of the Europa League a chance to have a competition that they can win. That's the lesson of yeah. the Nations League, but UEFA haven't learned it. Uh, so just to tell you about uh, those teams uh, in, in quick order and indeed in the order that they come in those rankings. Slavia Prague, Shakhtar, Dinamo Zagreb, Olympiakos, Dinamo Kiev, Partizan, Osijek, Red Star, Besiktas, Cluj, Sparta Prague, Payok, Zoria Luhansk, Galatasaray, Ludogorets, Fenerbahce, Victoria Pilsen, Rijeka, Trabzonspor and Ike. So thank you to Anghad for doing all that work for us. Um, now, our newest Buffalo, John Billingham, who achieved Buffalo status by going back through the SPM archive to create a list of Buffaloes, has both updated his list to include himself and started a new one for squirrels, uh, which is very kind. This is because Patrick Halliday became our first squirrel by offering a subject, squirrels, that turned into a completely organic multi-episode tangent. Uh, so thank you to John from all of us, um, except the second most recent Buffalo, Ed Prislucky. Greetings, gentlemen, says Ed. Imagine my crushing disappointment when I, having listened at two times speed through the first 20 minutes or so of the first 120 SPM episodes, heard on SPM 230 that someone has beaten me to the punch at rounding up all the names of the SPM buffaloes. I immediately quit. Uh, your buffalo and buffalo from Ed Brislucky. Sorry, Ed. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, Father's Day is just around the corner. And nothing says, I love you, Dad, more than a world-class trimmer for his balls. Uh, you heard that right. The Lawnmower 3.0 from Manscaped is the best body hair trimmer on the market. The three fathers of this group already have one, so will not be requiring what would be in any other circumstances the best Father's Day gift ever. 
but Rory and Steve might uh, think about purchasing one for their dads, maybe. Stephen, do you think about that? I mean, your dad hasn't got any hair on his head, but... I, I think he would be disappointed with that gift. I think a bottle of scotch might go down with a greater deal of satisfaction. Rory, could, could you convince your dad that it's an excellent gift? Do I want to talk to my dad about <laughs> trimming his balls? No. Uh, well, you know, if you do... I think hey... it's probably a better gift for, for dads of our age... That, I mean, my dad is 78. I think it's, I mean, I think it would be, you'd be, you'd be playing with fire, to be honest. <laughs> fire is an also <laughs> excellent way of trimming hair. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, you've got the ball deodorant and toner to put out that fire, should there be any. <laughs> None of which we, or Manscaped, recommend. Manscaped does offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels. You can get 20% off and free shipping using the code SPM at manscaped.com. The Manscaped Performance Package is the perfect gift for your dad this upcoming Father's Day. Have you ever seen a nose bush sticking out of your dad's nose, for example? Mm. Well... Imagine the dance that those hairs will do when you give your dad the ultimate men's hygiene package that says your balls will thank you on the box. Included in this new package is the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, which is waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual blade system, which is something of a mouthful. Look, guys, 79% of partners admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Why not hook your dad up with the best tools for the job? Get the performance package now. It includes the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner. And two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxes and the Shed Travel Bag. The performance package is the best value that Manscaped has to offer. And it's hot off the shelves. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPM at manscaped.com. Get your dad a gift you know they will use unless you're Steve and Rory. I, I don't know what's worse thinking about talking to my dad about trimming his balls or considering my mum's turn-ons. <laughs> <That's... laughs> Did they cancel each other out so it's actually, it's actually all right? They're both deeply troubling for me. It could be a combination been... of the two. One could, one could work in conjunction with the other, maybe. <laughs> you never know. That, that's romance. Uh, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use SPM. Use that code at manscaped.com to get free shipping and 20% off. And don't forget that you came from your dad's balls. This year, show your oh. home some love with Manscaped. 99% of that copy provided, not by me. Uh, now, in 24, Jack Bauer would have a debrief. In science, you might have a peer-led review. In politics, there's always an inquiry of some sort. But here at Set Piece Menu, there's something altogether more important and will no doubt be just as successful as all those things. Our hot takes and takeaways. This is our fourth annual Hot Takes and Takeaways episode following the end of a Premier League season, and it allows us to be even less structured than we normally are. So the floor is open for a flow of the hottest takes and the most thoughtful takeaways. Do you think that Pep Guardiola could have got more out of this lead squad than Marcelo Bielsa? Who are you trying to upset with the conclusion to this line of questioning? There's no good can come from this, Rory. <laughs> There's no good that can come from anything, Steve. Let's just let's just see. Let's just spitball, see where it takes us. There might not be good, but there might be hot. That's all that matters. <laughs> You're basically saying, shall we see if we can antagonise both of the most vociferous on social media fan bases? I think that's a good idea. I think that should be our new brand. I think we should think about how we can become a kind of deeply controversial podcast rather than a considered a nuanced one. Well, we've got the bears, so why there's... don't we just poke them? There's probably more money in the in the sponsorship deals if we do if we do that. <laughs> right. To be honest, um, no, I, I think um, 
I think Leeds, I, th- I, I actually think Leeds are still the story of the season. So they finished ninth. Yep. Uh, which is incredibly impressive in the top 10. Uh, although, as we'll come to in our SPM PLPL, uh, actually, three out of the four of us predicted exactly that Leeds would finish ninth. So we had a, a sense of expectation about them. Are you trying to say, Rory, that others didn't? Or that in meeting those expectations that we had, it's because we understood what Marcelo Bielsa could do with this Leeds team in the Premier League? Neither. I think highlighting our own genius is a happy side effect. But but to me, what's significant is that Bielsa represents the ultimate in foreignness. Bielsa is the most foreign figure in in English football. He is not only an actual foreigner, but he is kind of representative of of a school of thought that a lot of people thought was completely alien to England that couldn't work because of the the sense of exceptionalism that runs through English football. And I think this season, in the same way as Guardiola did or has done over the last five years, I think Bielsa has disproven quite a lot of English football's can sort of what's the word like self-satisfied presumptions about itself that that you couldn't do what he did in the Premier League that it wouldn't work that that it would be too risky that the Premier League play, effectively plays by different rules to all of the other leagues in all of the world that that the ideas that you you have to kind of bend to English football or English football breaks you. That that is the the overlying, overarching self belief of English football, and Bielsa has proved that wrong, completely wrong, spectacularly wrong, and ultimately comfortably wrong. Because Leeds haven't struggled at all. Leeds have looked completely at home. If you look at the squad that he's got, there's they did spend quite a lot of money in the summer. Rodrigo and Rafinha both cost quite a lot of money. Diego Llorente's not played a lot, but he was, you know, a, a kind of established La Liga centre half with with Sociedad. Um, but there's still the core of the team that, that that Bielsa had that was mid-table in the championship there. He's transformed Patrick Bamford into a player that people now... Patrick Bamford's going to spend his career having people say he should be playing for England rather than we can't really cut it in the Premier League. He's turned Stuart Dallas into a kind of Morrison's own brand, Jorginho Wijnaldum, which is amazing. Um, he's, he's What Bielsa's done is incredible, but... In, in, in and of itself, it's incredible. But I think the, the impact of it, or that won't be noted because English football can have all the evidence it likes and it will just ignore it if it doesn't fit with its own self-belief. So the next manager who's who's too foreign who comes in will, will be accused of all the same things as Bielsa. But if you were to look at if you were to look at it more scientifically, you would say that Bielsa has has disproven a lot of theories, just as Guardiola did, with a crucial difference. That with Guardiola, there has always been, rightly or wrongly, the idea that, it, well, he's got all the best players, so of course it works. That's not true of Bielsa. What Bielsa has proven is that English football is not different, and I think that is incredibly significant. Seeing as we are throwing hand grenades in the direction of Ellen Road as part of our, our new policy to generate an even larger audience, <laughs> did we have the same conversation about Chris Wilder a year ago when he led Sheffield United also tonight in the Premier League after their promotion with a squad that arguably costs significantly less to assemble? I don't think Wilder was short on credit at all. I think Wilder got a load of credit. But and is the no, point the difference between the two, potentially? I think the difference is that Chris Wilder was harnessing traditional English values, admittedly with, with some clever, very clever tactical tweaks, whereas Bielsa has introduced a, a style of play that is... I mean, Sheffield United were not as good to watch. They were not as relentlessly attacking as Leeds. They were they were well organised and they were they were they were 
attractive in that in in that kind of vague intangible sense that all teams were attractive. They weren't. They didn't play bad football at all. They weren't a long ball team, but they they were built around a core of British and Irish players. They were well organised. They were structured. They were disciplined. They had that that those kind of overlapping centre halves, which was their their trick to uh, to kind of dominate possession. They they were a good team. I don't think they challenged the orthodoxies of English football quite as much as Bielsa does. Partly through the way he plays, but partly through who he is and, and what 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 he's like. And I think it's funny that it sounds a bit silly, but maybe the best example of that is that he um you don't hear people criticizing the fact that he's got a translator anymore. That was always the big no no. Was manage manage why doesn't he learn English? Why doesn't he learn English? That doesn't is happen it, with Bielsa. Bielsa not 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 uh, not Chris Wilder. <laughs> the the, the, there is a foreignness to Bielsa that I think was that people would have delighted in seeing fail. That you know the kind of the hipster king who comes in and and actually it doesn't work in the Premier League. You can't cut it, but it's it's that's completely wrong. Whereas what Wilder did was was the the archetypal bring a good, solid, clever team up and establish an, establish them in the Premier League. We have seen that story before. Whereas Bielsa, there is a different there's a different edge to it. I think, and it, it's also interesting because Bielsa did better in a league in which he was not supposed to succeed, given all those assumptions uh, that you spoke about Rory than he perhaps did in other leagues which might have been more welcoming of him and the way that he plays his football and his foreignness I use air quotes for that but let's switch it around could Bielsa have done better with Manchester City than Pep Guardiola did given the huge praise that is coming Pep Guardiola's way for not only realising halfway through the season that something needed to change fundamentally to the way that they were playing and the way that he felt that they were not identifying Another another example of identifying with themselves, um, but also because given this very difficult season in terms of scheduling, a lot of people are after the fact, not before the season, because everybody thought Liverpool were going to win the league again. After the fact, they are retrospectively saying, well, of course, Manchester City won the league because they have the best players, they have the best resources, they have the best manager. So could Marcelo Bielsa have done better with this Manchester City team? Well, no, because you, you, it's a slightly different bar because Man City won the league so no Bielsa couldn't have done better Man City could win the league and the Champions League no I, I don't I don't think Marcelo Bielsa could have topped that to be honest 10 more points maybe not sure probably well, could, not okay then let rephrase the question could he also have achieved the same with Manchester City because if there if all the barriers that you were mentioning about have been dismantled over the course of time by Pep Guardiola who at the beginning faced the same sort of cliches has Marcelo Bielsa at least been able to break down enough of a barrier to consider that he would be able to similarly achieve with Manchester City? I think Bielsa could win the lead with Manchester City, yeah. Both of the coaches that we've mentioned have a shared ability to inspire, motivate, cajole and take their players along on a journey with them towards their successes even if those are in relative terms. But in both cases, that's also been a very gradual process. So in terms of just trying to rewind the clock and swapping them over at the start of the season, that's perhaps, in this season of all seasons, asking a bit much that they would have been able to create that sort of unity and ethos in in such a compacted and short kind of campaign, but it would certainly be an interesting long-term experiment. Chinch, are you are you engaging in this, or are you writing the next chapter of Reachcliff? Um, 
Because yeah. his head down, um, pen in hand. I just wonder. I mean, I just wonder. You see, so I, I understand my role in this podcast. Sometimes the stupidity which I provide is is relevant and helpful. This is a this is just good content. So at times I have to become a lister and just sit back, take it all in, and learn something. And this is what I've been doing, Steve, for the last fifty. I'm not writing it. Well, even though yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm doing both. I'm doing both. I'm, I'm listening in. I'm interested. And I'm also thinking about the next Jack Reachcliffe episode as well. So I'm, I'm kind of multitasking. But I, I am engaged. I am engaged. It's just the, the fact that I've actually forgotten what the topic of conversation was. So I'm kind of thinking on the hoof. And um, so far, I've come up with nothing. I have another um, theme to, to suggest. Maybe Chinch could get involved with, maybe not. Do we think that top four, the top four, is now set for the next few years? And do we also ask ourselves that question after every time this kind of thing happens and we are summarily proved wrong? Well, it, it, with the possible exception that the top four this year are the same as the top four last year. And also it does feel as though Tottenham and Arsenal have regressed to the point mm. where they have quite considerable ground to make up before they can lay claim to a top four place again. And that... It feels as though the challenge to the Champions League places is more likely to come from someone other than them over the course of the next season, or maybe two. Well, Le- Leicester would be the one that you'd, you'd throw in, but I just wonder whether there's a there's, the analysis with Leicester tends to focus on Rodgers and you know has his team blown it? Do, you know, do, do they choke in the in the running? But I think it's much more systemic, much more more structural than that. That. Leicester can't run a squad quite as deep as the, as the traditional top six, which means that particularly this season where obviously the, the calendar was really compressed and stuff, that was always going to be a major factor. But if you look at the, um, if you look at the form table over the last 10 games, Liverpool are top, Leeds are second, who are a bit of an outlier, but then it's Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham. The big teams came good in the last third of the season because they have the most resources. That's not going to change. So I think the fact that Leicester have missed out twice is, is in a sense, so closely, so narrowly, is to their immense credit. But I do wonder whether it actually hints at the fact that the gap is, they are kind of breaking, every, straining every sinew to, to close a gap that is that is being dragged further apart. My metaphor is not very good. <laughs> The gap is growing because forces beyond Leicester's control are forcing it to grow, and all Leicester are doing is basically trying to. All, all they're able to do is try to, to kind of keep to, to desperately clutch onto the coattails of the of the big four now. Because I agree with Steve that both Arsenal and Spurs are are falling behind. But the problem is that if you're out of the Champions League for two or three years, then the Champions League, then getting back to the Champions League becomes an exponentially bigger job with every season that you are gone. You can just about afford one year out of it, but by the time it gets to three, you've got a real problem. And is that maybe the one disappointment from this season that amid all the, the chaos, the uncertainty, the unusualness of what's happened over the course of the last nine months, that ultimately those with the, the deepest resources have proved to be the most bulletproof and the club with the the greatest ability to resist the kind of factors that became consequential for, for a lot of other clubs, Manchester City, went on to win the title at something of a canter. That 
injuries, the relentlessness of the, the season caught up with just about everyone other than the team that has pretty much a world-class player for every position times two. The, 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 it, it was a further demonstration that whatever uncontrollables emerge during the course of a campaign, depth of resources is ultimately the decisive factor. Yeah, and I think that the thing is that that was always going to be the case, that to an extent the chaos, certainly the early part of the season, was always a bit of a, a red herring, that that when you crunch all the games together and you, you make it much more intense, the team, with, the team with the deepest resources is going to win. And that's not to detract from what City have achieved this season and what they might go on to achieve at the end of this week, but that they had a, they had a kind of inbuilt advantage. I, I disagree slightly with what Hugh said about everyone thought Liverpool were going to win the lead. I, there's a little bit of revisionism going on there in the same way as there's a bit of revisionism going on when, when City were eighth, that everyone was writing them off. I don't think what was happening was they were being written off. I think people were saying City are eighth. Which is I, I, he's about to use fact, he's he's about, about to use evidence evidence to, um, to, to prove himself right. I set that up as a as a something a that trap. I could then come round to bring yeah. into um, evidential and fact based. Well, um, it's, I'm, I, I am not worried. Truth I don't, bombs, I've never like said that Liverpool would win the league this season. I didn't. I didn't think they would. Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. You're the only one of the four of us who didn't have them winning the league on SPM PLPL predictions. But so that doesn't mean that a majority didn't. As again, I will uh, use fact-based evidence uh, to prove a little bit later on. I've got a question for Chinch because Chinch, because of the way that the games have been, you've watched more Premier League football for Sky than you have done on any other previous season. So. Give us your impression of how you felt this season was and whether you saw it as a valuable can I, can I think adding about this? to your canon. Let me, let me think about it because I can't, I can't really answer well, that. It's something can, I've really thought about. Can I, can I, add, can I add a thought in? To, yes. It might, might prompt might some prompt. sort of spark in Chinch's yeah. otherwise um, doused brain. The <laughs> Lots of football matches being on TV is not good for football. That's the other, ma- that's the other major thing that we've learned. Definitely. Partly because you lo- you lose that sense of the Saturday afternoon three o'clock event, which we talked about before, but partly because the more you the more you allow people to watch football, the more they will wonder how much of it's any good. And when you market yourself as the best league in the world, and that's not it's not necessarily right because obviously the reason that let's let's play our greatest hits. The reason that people watch sit and watch Crystal Palace Burnley and complain about how rubbish it is is because they're not emotionally invested in either of the teams. If you don't care about Crystal Palace and Burnley, that game will be boring. Whether there are zero people in the stadium or forty thousand people in the stadium, you will find that game boring. Unless having... Chinch is doing co-coms, and and that was the reason that I set the question up in that way, because having more Chinch on our televisions, excellent. The product. That's true. Not necessarily what Chinch is not in control of. Not necessarily the same. That's true, but I think that there is, without question, the there has been an ennui that has set in because people have watched so much football. That they're not emotionally bonded to or, in, or emotionally interested in. They so have... this is where I can step in. Is that Thierry Henry? Thierry Henry. <laughs> that's that's right. what I'm here for. Boom. You did, you did say great. Back into hits. the shadows, like Reacher. Step out, headbutt. Back into the shadows. I play my part. You, you can have too much of a good thing. Overall, the Premier League product is is very good, and that we can have too much I... of an average thing. Well. <laughs> You, I think you're exposing, by, by having had all of the games on television, you, you have exposed the, the median, I guess, that people aren't generally aware of because they absorb most of those games through two-minute highlights on 
on the Sky Sports app or via an eight-minute highlights on, on Match of the Day. And that is a perfectly acceptable and, and preferable way for, for most of those games to, to be viewed. And actually, the, the other th- as well as having spread it too thinly, you've lost that three o'clock in the afternoon point at which people can follow the action that sets, in, in many ways, sets the tempo for the rest of the weekend. Oh, well, how will, how will the title rival respond when they play in the 5.30 game or on Sunday afternoon, which the likes of the Bundesliga and Ligue 1 have, have retained? And, and Bundesliga has, I know they have like a, a red zone type of coverage domestically, which enables people to follow all of the, the, the 230 games as they are in Germany uh, together. But it, uh, that, that, with, the benefit, with the benefit of hindsight, that was the big mistake of this season, not to find an alternative way to make sure that people could view their team in action without having to spread all 10 matches over the course of the weekend through the schedule from Friday through to Monday night. Well, one of the one of the things about the blanket coverage that, that we mentioned right at the beginning of the season is that there were, and there always is this, but because of the nature of the, the saturation of what we were experiencing at that time, having had the restart in the summer as well, was that we came up with the, the knee-jerk reactions. We, t- we spoke about knee-jerk reactions just after the first game or two of the season and how it's, it's crazy with the amount of coverage that we're getting that we have these talking points that inevitably are proved to be, quite quickly, completely stupid. And you might remember at the end of that episode, we each came up with three knee-jerk reactions. So I thought it would be a timely uh, moment to, to just review uh, those knee-jerk reactions to see just how accurate uh, we were. We still have obviously have the results of the SPMPLPL to come, but um, these will be hopefully um, proved to be a fairly childish process that we went through uh, of making these. So let's let's see how many of them came true. Um, starting with me, because um, you could just say no to all three. Uh, you might remember that day we had a conversation about Sheffield Wednesday and Chinch um, said that they will definitely be top six. So I stole that and said that Sheffield Wednesday will be in the top six in the championship. So oops. Uh, a pundit will say definite penalty before immediately being proved wrong. I imagine that happened several times. I wasn't charting it. And number three, VAR haters will say that the ref is going to the monitor way too much by the end of October. I'm not entirely sure if that happened, actually. They might have held off on that. There was enough VAR our hatred uh, targeted at other people at other times. Stephen, you said that United will panic buy Jadon Sancho for 10 million plus the asking price. That may still happen, um, but it didn't happen in that transfer window. You also said that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang will be Arsenal's joint top scorer and player of the year despite leaving in October. So regardless of what happened, because it didn't leave in October, it wasn't accurate. Uh, and the third one was West Brom will break the record for most penalties conceded in a Premier League season. Now, do you know how many they conceded, Steve? Oh, please tell me that's right. West Brom conceded 12 penalties this season, the highest number of all those in the Premier League this season, but one short no. of the overall record because Hull <laughs> conceded 13 in 2016-17. So that was remarkably close considering what an outlandish and left-field suggestion it was. I think my, my Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang suggestion wasn't entirely off the reservation if you consider that if you just flip it on its head in the latter stages of the season uh, Joe Willock scored more goals for Newcastle from the moment he made his debut for them than any Arsenal player did in the latter stages so you know there's a little bit of a, a variety on the theme you can definitely make a case that in a sort of existential sense Pierre Emerick Aubameyang left Arsenal in, <laughs> in, in about October <laughs> Rory, your knee-jerk reactions were Liverpool will be in crisis the moment they drop points. Tick. 
Number two, whoever makes a big transfer splash will have great notices, which funnily enough is also connected to number three, Lampard will be praised regardless. Because I think Chelsea got the notices for making the big transfer splash, and then Frank Lampard lost his job, but seemed to be praised regardless. Uh, so well done, Roy. I hope you're proud of that. Um, absolutely. Chinch, uh, can you remember the, uh, the uh, knee-jerk reactions that you came up with uh, way back in, what, September, October time? Uh, no. Right, well, here they are. <laughs> Number one, by Christmas, Manchester City will be mid-table and replace Pep with Neil Warnock. Ooh, First close. part, <laughs> excellent. Close. They were 13th at the end of November, I think. Uh, but Neil Warnock, unfortunately, was otherwise engaged. Yeah. Number two, VAR haters will storm Stockley Park. <laughs> <laughs> that got close as well. <laughs> that got quite close. And uh, there, were, there were other stormings in other different buildings in other different yeah. countries. Uh, and number three, Callum Robinson will win the Golden Boot. Ah. And Jamie Vardy will retire and play Old Steptoe in a Steptoe and Son remake. I do remember saying that, yeah. yeah. How close was that one? Well, the, prob- the problem is... is that anybody- they are making a film of his life, though, apparently, aren't they? Well, there you go. Are they going to call it Steptoe and Son? Uh, I hope so. Um, the, the problem with uh, trying to get that one right is that you had two very different predictions mm. in one. Mm. So that yeah. makes it very difficult to come true. Hostage to fortune. Yeah, mm-hmm. difficult. Um, and Jamie Vardy may well retire, but I doubt it. Um, but uh, I think it proves our point rather well that knee-jerk reactions and predictions are not ones generally based on sound judgment. But have, have they, because Rory, you didn't want me to talk about the fact that everybody thought that Liverpool were going to win the league and they didn't. And Manchester City won the league and everybody said that they should have done. Was there an element to everybody thinking things that would happen this season didn't? Or has it followed a path that most of us would have thought was a sensible prediction at the beginning? I think I, I just think that there's a little bit of, of extremity in the debate. So I think the idea that that people thought Liverpool might win the lead at the start of the season, that that's not ridiculous to think that the team that had been the best team in July might continue to be the best team in September. And it didn't turn out that way, obviously, but it's hardly like a kind of... It's hardly damning proof of a, of a media bias towards Liverpool, and equally, I think that that this that this, this route this story has taken root that when City were struggling in November, that everyone was writing them off. I don't think that's true either. I think what people what happened in November was that people said Man City are thirteenth. That's not good, and it's not good. You can't you you can dress up however you like, but and there were reasons for it, but Man City were 13th in November. That's not really where Man City want to be. But I don't think at any point, I don't think at any point was there a kind of groundswell of opinion where everyone was saying that Liverpool will win the lead easily. And I I certainly don't think there was a, a groundswell of opinion at any point that, that Man City were finished. I think those are, that what tends to happen is people see occasional sort of clips or out, outtakes or cuts of certain interviews of certain of one person saying something and for some reason that is then taken to be proof of this is what everybody thinks and this is what everyone's saying it's kind of and I just think it's a not a particularly healthy or helpful way to conduct a debate both of those there were some doubts over City in November because they were 13th that's not ridiculous there were some people who thought Liverpool might win the lead in September because they'd won the lead like in July that's not ridiculous either and the fact that those two things didn't come to pass I, I shouldn't I'm not, I won't mention the name but like whenever you do a, a broadcast with a certain pundit you are kind of reminded of of some prediction that you made six months ago because he asked you for that prediction and it because it didn't turn out to be right and it turns out that whoa you're not Nostradamus 
you're kind of mocked for knowing nothing about football. So it's not one that I made, but one of his co-pundits suggested that Brighton might re- get relegated at the start of the season. So you end up getting this kind of, well, how did that work out for you? Are they getting relegated? Are they getting relegated? It wasn't ridiculous to think that Brighton might get relegated at the start of the season. That's not that's not crazy to have said, in my bottom three, I think it might be Brighton. And I, I just think we're, we, we, we all pay far too much attention to what are called predictions, but are in fact guesses. And we don't allow the fact that circumstances change. So yeah, Liverpool probably would have done sort of better chance of, of defending the title if they'd not lost all three of their central defenders. That's not, that's not controversial. And we, t- we take these kind of outlying opinions as proof of some sort of inner truth that everyone has kind of scrawled on a wall and said is, is gospel. And it's not. It's just, yeah, in, in November, Man City were 13th and weren't doing particularly well. So people said Man City are 13th and aren't doing particularly well. It'll be hard for them to win the title. And it was hard for them to win the title. They had to win loads of games in a row to do it. There was a caveat, I think. I, I certainly feel like I said regarding Liverpool's title chances that something that was going to count against them is that they had effectively already put together back-to-back title-winning seasons. They'd just fallen a point short in astonishing circumstances the season before they went on to win it. And it has been a long time since a team has put together three successive title-winning campaigns. And there was always going to be a chance, and so it came to pass, that things would would catch up on them. That Mm -hmm. the the massive injury problems that they had managed to avoid during the course of the previous season, they, they all came in in a glut in, in the space of a few weeks. And that maybe last season they had, as in two seasons ago, they had one or two decisions go in their favour. Whereas this season, one or two close calls went against them. Those can be the, the very small margins that can make the big differences. And it was always going to be very difficult for Liverpool to put together another 90-plus point season that would have been required for them to win the Premier League. And and I I don't think, in the same way as there was no need to write Manchester City off in the autumn, there's certainly no need to write Liverpool off now because they've had a load of problems that have, have cost them a title challenge this time around. Haven't Manchester City and Liverpool over the course of the last four seasons got exactly the same number of yeah. points? Yeah. And yeah, so it goes apparently. to show you that, that, that that's... Interesting consistency, even if you base the fact that Liverpool have not have fallen off this year and City fell off last year, it's completely understandable, but the clubs should do that over the course of a four-year period, mm. given that that is the period where they've had exactly the same number of points. But there's, there's also something broader there, which is this, this concept of bad champions, which is, is relatively new. I don't think it's, 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 not been, it's not been created this season. I think it probably dates back to Chelsea and what Antonio Conte brilliantly described as the Mourinho season after they'd won the league. And this idea that, that a team is bad champions is, is among the most nonsensical and slightly offensive ideas that I, I can think of being created. And it strikes me that, it, that it's indicative of something a little bit broader. So the, the way it seems to be applied is that if you don't put up a stout defence of your title, which very few teams have done in the last 10 years, Liverpool are the first team other than Manchester City to win the league and then qualify for the Champions League the next season since 2011. That, that, that in itself is actually a bit of an achievement, bizarrely. Um, it, it, in some way, it's used as a stick to say that your title victory itself was not warranted. And that strikes me as being a very modern football thing, that we have found a way 
of discrediting mm. what is an indisputable achievement, throwing somehow throwing that into controversy or into into debate, placing it under scrutiny. Because if you don't do well enough the following season, what you achieved in the title winning season is somehow devalued. And that I find that a really, really I think the media are totally culpable in this. I find that a really weird thing to do. Genuinely really weird. So Man City were not bad champ well no in fact that's not true. So when Man City got a hundred points, then ninety-nine points or ninety-eight ninety-eight points in successive seasons. And then as Steve says could just couldn't keep up with Liverpool the following year. They I think they ended on eighty two, but they, they they didn't get close to Liverpool. You know, it was it was an eighteen point gap at the end. They were described as being bad champions. It's a very Roy Keane thing. They're bad champions. Roy Keane and Gary Neville, bad champions. They're bad champions. And it's rooted in this Fergie idea that that what you that as soon as you've won something you forget about it. And that if you don't do that, there's some, you're somehow lacking. Which goes into this this is a trend that isn't something I've, I've come up with, but I think it's really interesting. This like industrial, it might even have been Steve who brought it up first. This like industrialization of trophy collection, where if you are not winning constant trophies, if you're not getting sort of 35 career trophies like Maxwell or 38 career trophies like Danny Alves or whatever, then you are somehow a failure, that you shouldn't enjoy winning the trophy. I think Keane said about Liverpool at the start of the season that that they, they, they would struggle because Klopp had, Klopp had allowed them to enjoy it too much. That is such a joyless and kind of miserable way to think about this thing that you're doing. Of course, they should, teams should enjoy the trophy, the fact they've won, they've won the Premier League. What, what on earth would be the point of it if they didn't enjoy it? And I think that, the, that it's, it's been allowed to catch on too much. And it's, it's, look, it's partly because fans of other clubs want any stick at all to be anybody with. So, yeah, yeah if that's Man exactly City... It. That's exactly it, yeah. If Man City end up finishing second with a perfectly respectable 82 points because, hey, it's actually quite hard to win the title three years in a row, then that is, well, they're bad champions. They've not they've not done enough. It, but it's also almost getting to the stage where if you're not... We're getting to the stage now where if you're not winning the league every year with record points totals, you are some in some way failing. And that is indicative of an, of an, an incredibly unhealthy football culture. That is just completely unsustainable, and that's and that's why Manchester City this season have kind of got away with that a little bit because of the twenty-one wins in a row, all comps, not not Premier League, but it was that run that allowed them to go from being thirteenth in November uh, to winning the league. Because they did that, the amount of points they achieved at the end, eighty-six, yeah. I think they finished yeah. with, is is not getting that same sort of criticism because of how the how the season transpired, which is of value to them given what you've just described about how uh, these sorts of things. If it's if it's less than perfect, it's nothing. And, and the, the flip side of what Rory has just said there is we were having debates, or people were, not us. I think we were trying to put that particular fire out about City and Liverpool. Is this the greatest rivalry ever in the Premier League? Well, you need time and the ability to step back before making judgments about the greatest, the best the most exciting. The, the, great, the greatness of Pep's Manchester City may well be judged in the long term by A, whether they win the Champions League, which they may well have done by the time a lot of people hear this, and B, whether they can win the title three years in succession. Because Manchester United did that twice during this Premier League era. So that has got to be the barometer by which you judge the great sides. 
And in terms of rivalries, that, that, that rivalries have got to span a period of time that lasts longer than 18 months. These takes have been searingly hot. Well done, everybody. The final one we should probably mention is fans. Um, and uh, having had the opportunity to be in Stadia, I think all of us, uh, at the end of the season when fans had returned, and getting that sense that 10,000 at most sounds like a lot more, partly because of the difference between 10,000 and zero, it, it was incredibly nice. Uh, but um, Steve, what would, what would you like to say about fans? Well, I think the first thing that struck me during the course of this season was that the players responded, and I know this ties into the end of last season as well, into playing competitive football without supporters incredibly well. Mm. Yes, there were some matches that would have definitely been enhanced by having supporters in the stadium. And some of the crazy things we've seen, you know, particularly the fact that we've had more wins away from home than home wins this season is almost certainly because of the absence of supporters. But that in terms of the professionalism and the competitiveness with which games have been played under these incredibly unusual circumstances, I think the, the, the influence of... We've, we've just had a bit of an insight into how much influence supporters really do have on... Maybe not just a, not a game, but the the course of an entire season. It might not be as great as we've previously given them credit for, but what we have seen in the last couple of weeks is to is how vital they are to the spectacle and how much they can enhance the viewing experience for everybody, and that we should cherish match-going supporters and that we should find a way of making it affordable and as easy as possible for people to fill football stadiums when they are again able to do so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly troubled by the fact that I don't think the Premier, no, the Premier League are planning on, this is my first prediction for next season that will be wrong, <laughs> but I think the Premier League are planning on, on having full stadiums, their whole line is full stadiums from, from the start of August. I just don't see how that happens from where we are now. I don't see how you go from 10,000 at the end of May to 76,000 inside Old Trafford mm. on August the 13th. I just, I, I, that does not seem reasonable to me. They'll try and get like half capacity, I guess, for the Euro, the last week of the Euros. And, and I suspect that's what it might be until December, January, end of next season. I don't, I think we're still a long way from full stadiums. Um, everything Steve said is absolutely right that it, it's taught us. There was this this sort of this this strain of thinking kind of caught hold like last autumn that that the fact that football was happening was proof that clubs didn't care about fans and that they that they that they just kind of they were bowling on regardless and that they didn't it showed how little that you know the clubs thought of the match during fan. I think having spoken to people inside clubs, I think it's the exact opposite. I think seeing what football looks like without fans in the stadium has proved to them all how much fans matter and how much they need fans back as quickly as possible. Um, and you hope that that might lead to some sort of um, some sort of movement on on ticket pricing to make, or even not even ticket pricing, but like accessibility for kids and stuff. I think that's the most important element of it. That there's a limit to what you can expect clubs to do to to cost themselves money. You know, Manchester United aren't going to be like, well, do you know what? Just a fiver for a ticket, turn up on the day is no problem. Just you know, just come in. Just the first seventy six thousand who get here with a fiver. You can just watch the game. That's fine. That's not going to happen. Tickets are a premium. It's a premium entertainment product. The tickets will be priced accordingly. But you need to find a way to to get kids in as much as possible. I think. Um, I agree with Steve as well that the players have shown incredible professionalism to get used to it and to to make it matter. And I think the other thing that is that is significant is how much it has mattered. 
even without fans in the stadiums. You look at kind of what happened in Lille on Sunday night after they won the lead. You look at the celebrations in Madrid, in in Milan a couple of weeks ago when Inter won it, um, Glasgow for Rangers. Even though fans have been distant from it, they have still it still means something. It still it still counts to the fans. That's really important. And the other thing is that at Anfield on Sunday, there was a fella sat behind me who got really stressed every time Liverpool played the ball out from the back. And you could hear Williams and Phillips and Fabinho and Thiago in ascending order of how good they are on the ball um, would be kind of playing those patterns in front of the box and be going, come on, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it, come on. And it did strike me that fans are going to have to relearn a, that watching football in person is really stressful. And B, the, the certain stuff that we got used to in the before times that, that I think people have forgotten they are used to and playing out from the back is one of them. We, <laughs> we are beyond complaining about that now. We don't complain about it as fans anymore. Just get rid of it. Forward. Forward is a, a constant refrain. And actually, it's funny enough, having, having them back in has, has given the sense that being away and being forced to be away has reignited their enthusiasm to the extent that if there was any apathy amongst fans just watching football because they were so used to that experience. They have mm. been reminded what it's like to not be there so that they appreciate it more and they might be able to create an even better atmosphere uh, once they return. So once again, the Premier League season has ended and with it, the SPM PLPL. Uh, were more people checking the final table of the former or the latter on Sunday night? I'll let you decide. The answer to us is very obvious. The SPM PLPL is the competition that asks you at the beginning of the season to predict the final Premier League table and then forget you did until now when we've just reminded you. You get more points depending on how close your prediction is to that team's final place, and those are the same points as separated by how many of those predictions are exactly correct, followed by one away, etc, etc. Without further ado then, let us say congratulations, because that may be the thing of most value heading this person's way, to the winner of SPM PLPL season 2020-2021, Jacob Davis. Jacob, congratulations. Your submission with the team name Jacob D94, not particularly creative, but it doesn't matter when you're the winner, finished with 368 points, four ahead of second place Zed United, Michael Zakaim, with Stuart Dallas Cowboys, the team of John Wilkinson, who Stephen and I work with at the BBC. Well uh, so done, John. Not that we're capable of bumping up anybody's uh, scores as a result of us knowing them. A further two points behind. Jacob had four bang-on predictions. That was Arsenal, Palace, Southampton and Brighton. And seven that were one away. Remarkably, only one out of the top ten, and this is the fact bomb that I promised you earlier, didn't have Liverpool winning the league. And well. that was Sebastian Miller, who finished in 10th, who correctly predicted that Manchester City uh, would win the league with his team called Dirty Leeds which ironically had Leeds exactly correct. Um, you might all be interested to know how we did. So here we go. This is the revelation that matters most to the four of us. Chinch, you finished in 68th place. Well. Which, given that we had nearly 700 people, must be considered a significant achievement. Chinch is proving to be consistently quite good at this. <laughs> yeah, which is not bad. Yeah, it's sort of deeply upsetting for all of us. Uh, you got Burnley and West Brom exactly right, Chinch. So congratulations to you. Stephen finished 54th and got Leeds, Brighton and West Brom exactly right. All right, so we're going in ascending order. We're going in ascending order, like we had earlier on with the fancy Premier League. It's what we do in TV. Uh, uh, Hugh finished 34th, also getting Leeds, Brighton and West Brom exactly right. <laughs> oh, which my means God, that exhale will tell you. Do my hair. <laughs> Get ready. Rory finished in 21st place out of nearly go. 700 uh, competitors, getting Manchester City, Leeds 
and Aston Villa exactly right. But, Rory, mm. your spectacular failure was West Ham. Yes, that doesn't surprise me. If you had yeah. just put them in the top 10 of your Premier League predictions, that, on its own, would have put you in the top 10 of SPM PLPL finishes. Devastating. So, Devastating. Surely, surely West Ham was so. everybody's undoing this season. West Ham and Sheffield United, surely. Uh, a lot of people had Sheffield United higher up. A lot of people had West Ham. Uh, they had kind of 15th, but there were a lot of people getting Brighton right, uh, Crystal Palace right, that really kind of nebulous area that it's, mm. I find it very difficult to actually... They, they all seem to finish in the way that most people uh, predicted, even if everybody thought Liverpool was going to win the league. And they all thought that West Brom and Fulham would go down, but quite a lot of them had the likes of Burnley in there, some Brighton, but not very many had Sheffield United. Uh, so that is the uh, culmination of, once again, a glorious SPM PLPL season. Thank you to all of you. Congratulations to Jacob for winning. We will cobble together a prize, which will be remarkably similar to the prize that our previous winner from last year will get, because we'll just order two of everything. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory, and Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do we now have to come up with loads of material for the Euros? Uh, we do. We have to think about uh, all sorts of cerebral aspects of uh, a, a continental competition. We're just we, the problem is that we're so loyal to our listeners, Steve. That's the thing. I think that's why people like us so much. Because we, you know, we go all these other podcasts. They take a break. They do special things. We're just there every week, churning away with a with a holding midfielder of, of the podcast world. Yes, with nothing all, special. All those, all those with the corporate backing. They just take a hiatus. Yeah, I know. Yeah, these people we, have we're, we're out here flogging pubic trimmers left, right, and centre all year long. Dead, dead horses everywhere. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. It's the it's the it's the perseverance that people admire.